<laughs> okay. <laughs> so we're going to go from uh, the text of Pirkei Avot. Okay. Uh, it's one of the tractates of the Mishnah uh, brought down by um, Yehuda Hanasi. And uh, we're talking about a passage here in chapter 1, um, paragraph 6. And it says that uh, Yehoshua ben Parachiah says, Accept upon yourself a teacher and acquire, uh, focus on the word acquire, for yourself a friend. Um, and judge every person favorably. So... Why does it say acquire for yourself a friend? Um, what does that indicate? It seems like it's telling us to not to get a friend and not to develop a friendship, but acquire a friend, which is to take hold of a friend, whatever means necessary to get this friend. So we'll do a little commentary here from the Rambam. You know me, I always love to read about the Rambam's writings. So he says acquire for yourself a friend in his commentary on Pirkei Avot. And um, he said it with an expression of acquisition, and he did not say make for yourself a friend or befriend others. The intention of this is that a person must acquire a friend for himself so that all of his deeds and all of his matters be refined through him. As they, as they said in Ta'anit 23a, either a friend or death. So it seems that it's pretty important to have a friend uh, that you acquire. Uh, that's not based on necessarily uh, emotional connection uh, solely or just something that you have in common, but someone that you can trust to help you uh, to develop your character, your personal character traits. And that also that they can trust you enough to help them develop their character traits. So... And if he does not find him, or, which is a friend, he must uh, make efforts for it with all his heart, and even he must lead him to his friendship until he becomes a friend. And then he must never let off from, from following his friend's will until his friendship is firmed up. It is as the masters of ethics say, when you love, do not love according to your traits, but rather love according to the trait of your friend. And when each of the friends has the intention to fulfill the will of his friend, the intention of both of them will be one without a doubt. And how good is the statement of Aristotle? The friend is one. So the idea here is that two people that come together with true friendship, when they seek out each other to acquire one another's friendship, they become like one. Again, with the idea of building each other up. Um... Let's see. And there are three types of friends. A friend for benefit, a friend for enjoyment, and a friend for virtue. Indeed, a friend for benefit is like the friendship of two business partners and the friendship of a king and his retinue. Whereas the friendship for enjoyment is, is of two types. The friend for pleasure and the friend for confidence. Indeed, the friend for pleasure is like the friendship of males and females and similar to it, whereas the friend for confidence is when a man has a friend to whom he can confide his soul. He will not keep anything from him, not in action and not in speech. He will make him know all of his affairs, the good ones and the disgraceful, without fearing from him that any loss will come to him 
with all of this not from him and not from another. So a true friend here is someone that we can confide in. Uh, all of you know our good traits are the negative things that happen to us, and we can trust that they're not going to uh, say disparaging things or make fun of us. And also that he's uh, the person's not going to go and spread our business to everyone else. Anyone who does that is based on the text here is not such a friend. So we want to be able to confide in someone, and it doesn't have to be many people, but it's important to acquire this friend so that uh, we're attached to them uh, for these reasons. Okay, as when a person has such a level of confidence in a man, he finds great enjoyment in his words and in his great friendship. So having a friend is someone that you like to listen to, not necessarily that you always have to talk you know, sometimes it's you, know, you need. We need somebody to uh, to listen to and learn from. So again, he finds great enjoyment in his words and in his great friendship. And a friend for virtue is when the desire of both of them and their intention is for one thing, and that is the good. And each each one wants to be helped by his friend in reaching this good for both of them together. So both parties benefit. This is the uh, true friend of virtue. And this is the friend which he commanded to acquire. And it is like the love of the master for the student and of the student for the master. So when, uh, when Rabbi Parachiah talks about acquiring a friend, this is what he's really talking about, according to the Rambam, a friend of virtue, that both of you are headed in the path for the good for one another, uh, you can confide in each other without being afraid of uh, of being torn down or your business being spread everywhere. And that, again, the ultimate goal here is to connect in a way that builds each other up. And most often, this is found in uh, study partners. You know, uh, men and women alike develop long life friendships through through the study of Torah together. Uh, that's the ultimate path for the good, you know, uh, to come together, uh, two people that can tell each other the truth about uh, what it says, how they think about it, and say, no, you're not too good, that's not so correct, or yeah, this is great, or, or whatever, and be honest, but all for the good. So on that note, it's important to have a friend for, for virtuous re reasons, not just emotional connection, which is also important. Um, not someone to tell us everything that we think we want to hear, but someone that will be straight and honest. Um, I heard it once said that there's a difference between being kind and being nice. Uh, the person who's nice, there's nothing wrong with being nice. But the person who is nice to you will be inclined to tell you what they think you want to hear. Um, a person who shows a lot of kindness would be more inclined to tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. So kindness is telling the truth, um, where being nice is pleasant, but it, it, it may not what we need, be, be what we need to hear. Okay, so may Hashem help us all to find a friend of virtue uh, that we can grow together with uh, and have long, uh, lifelong connections uh, for the good. And the second concept that I would like to talk about here is... Uh, it's a Rashi, a Rashi commentary. And he suggests that this Mishnah means that one should acquire uh, Sepharim, which are books on Torah. 
So he's, he's suggesting here that holy books that help us to learn Torah uh, are friends. Okay, uh, they, are best, they are best companions, they are the best companions and are essential for acquiring Torah knowledge. So, if books are our friends, and we want, you know, holy books are our friends, according to Rashi, and we're supposed to uh, have friendships of virtue, um, let's talk a, a little bit about how how we're supposed to treat our friends. So, if we treat our friends that are people with kindness and honesty and honor, um, how much more should we treat our holy books that we have that teach us how to live a godly lifestyle, uh, that teach us how to honor Hashem with uh, through learning, um, how to be an upright person, if you would say, whether we be Jewish or not Jewish, whether it have to do with the Sheva Mitzvot or the or the Ten Words, or the 613 Mitzvot, whatever applies, all these things come from these holy books, which Rashi says are, are essentially our friends. So um, on that note, I'd like to talk a little bit tonight about how are we supposed to treat holy books? Um, is this subject uh, something that's redundant for you guys? How to treat holy books? Good, good, because... I don't think it's exhaustible. You know, you can't review it enough. So I have a few. I have a few words here from some teachers that talk about the appropriateness of holy books. That we should treat books like royalty. Um, if the description of God as king or sovereign has a physical manifestation in Judaism, it is through the decoration of a sefer Torah. So uh, you guys have seen the the uh, a Torah scroll. When it comes out of the ark, it's adorned usually with a with a beautiful cover, or uh, in the Ashkenazi world, it has a beautiful velvet cover with nice embroidery. Uh, there's a crown on the top with uh, with rimonim with bells on it that uh, gets everyone's attention that the Torah's out, uh, and the the Torah scroll is always treated with the highest reverence. Um, Sephardim uh, they make cases that sit upright on the table. And the Torah scroll never comes out of the case. The case is opened in the two parts. And uh, it's usually adorned with silver or gold. It's very heavy. <laughs> um, but it sits on the table vertically. And uh, we read from, from the scroll face to face. But uh, again, they're also adorned with crowns, with rimonim or bells for everyone to see. They're very beautiful. Um, also, the, the scroll of the Torah is written on parchment. Um, in Ashkenazic Jewry, the Sefer Torah is dressed in an elaborate cloth mantle, which is frequently decorated with semi-precious stones and a breastplate. In Sephardic communities, uh, the Sefer Torah is kept in its own case, usually made of silver. In both communities, the Sefer Torah is adorned with a crown also of silver. Right, right. Uh, like uh, acknowledging the royalty of Hashem. Uh, it's the closest. The Sefer Torah is the closest manifestation of God that we have uh, in the world today, uh, since the the destruction of the first temple. Actually, so as with royalty, an elaborate protocol has developed. When the Torah is lifted, people stand. 
Um, another concept is that when the Torah scroll is out of the ark, you never turn your back to it. You, uh, we always, uh, when we leave the room, when the Torah scroll is out, we always uh, bow and back away as if you're standing in front of a king. So when the Torah is carried around the congregation, people face it and kiss its mantle out of respect. The parchment or, or the the cloth that the Torah is written on is never touched directly with one's own hand. Or um, there's always a barrier. Um, a lot of a lot of men will take uh, take the corner of their tali where the tzitzit is tied, and they'll touch when they go up to read the aliyah, where the beginning of the parsha starts. They'll touch right there to acknowledge the the beginning, but never with their bare hands. Um, the 16th century Kabbalist. Uh, Eliyah ben Moshe de Vidas describes the royal image of the Torah explicitly. And he says, when one carries holy books, one should act as though one is carrying the clothes of the king uh, before the king. De Vidas is drawing on an, on an idea expressed in the Zohar, um, which is a classic work of Jewish mysticism that most people only see the garments of Torah now, this is on a mystical level when we say the garments of Torah. Of, of course, when we see a Torah scroll, we, with our eyes, we see the parchment and the letters, the black and white of it, the shapes of the letters and uh, the work of the, uh, of the scribe who wrote it. But he's talking about a mystical concept here that most people only see the garments, but some can penetrate through the garments to the body, and the truly enlightened can even glimpse the soul of the Torah. So he's suggesting here that the Torah is not simply parchment and ink. That on a mystical level in the upper world, if you would, um, there's, there's so much depth to it, it's almost like an entity within itself. So, the hierarchy of books, as Davidas expresses, other holy books are only garments for the Torah itself. So all, all of the books that are taught from in Judaism, what it's saying here is the, the foundation of all the books is the Sefer Torah. Everything emanates from that. All of our other books that we study from, uh, our Sidurim, all the commentaries, the, uh, the oral Torah, everything, all those things are like garments for the written Torah, which is the, the Torah scroll itself. This image of the Torah's superiority over other holy books is given concrete expression in Jewish practice. As expressed in the Mishnah, the primary doc document of rabbinic law, the guiding principle, was that one increases in holiness and does not decrease. A Sefer Torah was at the pinnacle of, of the ladder of holiness, and one was not allowed to sell a Sefer Torah to buy other synagogue items, for that would be a decrease in holiness. Okay, um, so without without a kosher Torah scroll, um, none of the other in, in the synagogue in the community, if the if the kosher Torah scroll is not the foundation of the community as far as learning, that any of the other books without that it brings a decrease of holiness, not an increase. 
So, okay, as a physical expression of this ladder of holiness, the Talmud prescribes that a Sefer Torah can be stacked upon another Sefer Torah. And we're starting now, we're getting into the way uh, to handle these types of books and items. So uh, it's saying here that the Talmud prescribes that you can stack one Torah scroll on top of another, but an individual book of the five books of the Torah could not be put on top of a Sefer Torah. Similarly, a single book of the five books could be put on top of the books of, of the prophets or books of the writings, but not vice versa. So if you have, uh, you guys have seen this, the, the Humash that's in five volumes, um, you can't put that on top of a whole Humash, you know, stack it on top. Uh, but you could put it on top of uh, any of the books of the prophets or like uh, the book of Esther or any of the writings or anything like that. Um, because the, the book of the Torah itself uh, is, is the highest level of holiness of all the books. But again, one of the books is, you can't, one Torah book, you can't put it on top of the whole compilation of the Torah. It's just, um, it, it takes away from the holiness is the idea. Okay. So similarly, yeah, a single book of the five books could be put on top of the books of the prophets or of the books of the writings, but not vice versa. Eventually, this hierarchy was extended to non-biblical books as well. Um, so like these, these Sidurim here, this is our daily prayer book in the Jewish world. Uh, we we treat them with uh, with the utmost respect as well. We don't put them face down. If one of, if we drop it, um, we pick it up and we we kiss it, which might seem strange. Why are we kissing books? It's it's to show it's to show respect uh, towards our service to our King and our God. Yes, exactly. Yeah, even if even if uh, what let what she was saying uh, for the viewers, um, you're not supposed to put holy books on the ground, which is correct. Uh, that's detracts from the holiness of it. Also, um, if you're sitting on a bench, um, it's not proper to set a, a a Torah holy book, any type of holy book, on the bench next to you. Um, if you're going to set it in a chair, it should be sitting face out, standing up. Like, for example, this is the back of the chair, and this is the seat here. You should set it like this. So, so that's what it's talking about here, that, uh, that this hierarchy was eventually extended to non-biblical books. Uh, the medieval work Sefer Hasidim, says that one should not stack books of Talmud, um, which is rabbinic discussions of the Mishnah, on top of books of the Bible. And one person was remembered for having separate cabinets for Bible, books, and for other works of the Oral Torah. Um, so, it's, it's not, it, it, you don't have to separate them, is what it's saying, but it's, 
it's like a, a stronger form of respect towards the books is why they're mentioning this person. They have one cabinet for the Torah books and another cabinet for the oral Torah books. Okay, so uh, so people would not. He did this so people would not associate the holiness of the Bible with the rabbinic writings. Interestingly, the same logic also led the op- led to the opposite practice. Um, Sefer Hasidim number nine hundred nine reports that one person put a book of oral Torah on top of a book of written Torah. His friend said to him, "Why are you doing that? Come on, man, what are you doing?" And he responded in order to preserve the the book of the written Torah because by covering it with this, I will save it from the dust and ashes falling upon it. And it is better that I cover it with the pamphlets of oral Torah and not with another book of the written Torah. The ideology here, it makes sense, you know, but uh, that's that's not the best practice. Bookcases, bookcases, of course, and the ark for the Torah scroll, that's... That's the common practice. So, it is not clear how one would uh, relatively rank the various non-biblical books. But the idea of how one stacks one's books provides an interesting parallel to the varying levels of authority in royal aristocracy. Parallel to the treatment of holy texts as royalty are other rules dealing with how one treats books. The Vidas said that showing honor to, to one's library includes placing books in a prominent place in one's home. So if you look around here at the Nativ Center, all the books are in a prominent place. This is a house of study. It's a house of gathering and uh, fellowship. Um, I mean, what, what better of a way to present all these holy books for anyone who comes in to see? So... Um, protecting them with heavy pieces of cloth and using traps to protect the books from destruction by rodents or cats. Um, that's a good thing to do. Uh, I don't know if any of us would have a rodent or cat problem. <laughs> yeah, some yeah, some dogs like to nip and scratch, right, on objects. So it's a good idea to protect the books from those things. Um this is, this is one that uh, we commonly see that's more relevant to all of us is uh, if a book is upside down on a shelf, one is to turn the book right side up and kiss it. And there's another concept with this. You walk up to a bookcase. It's a good practice when you go up to a case of holy books. Just look around, and uh, usually one of them will speak to you is what's said about it. And how do you know it's speaking to you? If it's upside down, it wants you to, to, to pick it up. Yes. So, what better way to speak back to the book that's speaking to you by taking it out, opening it up. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm dealing with sinus problems today. Please bear with me. So, pulling the book out, open it up, and read a, uh, read a pasuk, a chapter. It doesn't take 30 seconds to read a little bit and... You know, maybe you didn't have time to study Torah today, or or whatever the case, but if the book is speaking to you, pick it up, open it up, read it out loud, talk back to it, and it'll bless you. Not the book, but the teachings from the book. The book's not magic. We're not trying to 
to venerate the books here, but they do deserve uh, a certain level of respect, like we would treat our friends. So we take it out, maybe read a uh, maybe read a passage or two, give it a kiss, and put it back in the in the proper manner where it's sitting upright. Also, one should not shame a holy book, which we already mentioned about placing it on a bench, but. Uh, one of the one thing that a lot of people aren't aware of is the bedroom. It's common practice uh, in today's world to to lay down in the bed, you know, with the lamp on and read read for a little bit while you're relaxing, getting ready to go to sleep. Um, if a person is uh, showing uh, any form of uh, of nakedness, um, usually parts of their body that would normally be covered up. Uh, it's not appropriate to, to be that way in front of a holy book. So everyone have, everyone can get the idea of what, where I'm going with this. In the bedroom, in any bedroom, uh, we shouldn't be unclothed in front of the holy books. So is it proper to have a book in your bedroom to study at night? Absolutely. But when you're done, when you're done, you want to make sure that you either put it in a drawer with a cover, some type of a cloth cover or... or something over it to, um, to shield it from any type of indecency or to put it in a bookshelf uh, like we see these books here uh, standing up out of where the, where the edge of the book is out of the view of, of your personage. Um, and obviously, um, it's not proper to take holy books into the bathroom. That's another place where people like to read in today's culture. Um, bring a uh, bring a Mad Libs or something, you know. Uh, do a puzzle, <laughs> but please, please don't bring the holy books in the bathroom. And if you if we don't know, we don't know. But it's not proper. It's the same thing as uh, 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 saying a blessing in the bathroom. Well, it's not proper for us to say the name of Hashem in the bathroom. So it's it's a good practice to uh, really not to talk at all <laughs> in the bathroom. Okay, so what happens if a Sefer Torah falls to the ground? This is talking about a Torah scroll. So we're at the synagogue, you know, on Shabbat, and or or, or better examples on Simchat Torah, where everyone's celebrating the finishing of the Parsha system for the year. Uh, we're dancing. Maybe there's a little drinking involved. Uh, a little bit of loose, you know, dancing and partying, and uh, the Torah scroll happens to fall down and hit the floor. What do we do with, with this? Um, if we're not even supposed to set holy books on the ground, how do we handle it with, a, with if, a, if a Torah scroll falls? So many people believe that the person responsible should fast, along with anyone who saw the Torah fall. Uh, the origin of this custom, however, is fairly late, uh, from the 1600s, apparently popularized by the Polish authority, Rabbi Abraham uh, Gombiner. Other, and I hope I'm saying that properly, if I, please forgive me if I didn't pronounce his name properly. Other rabbis have suggested alternatives, including giving money uh, to, to tzedakah, which is uh, social justice causes, um, charity, if you would are buying a new Torah mantle, which is a cover for the Torah, 
uh, reciting psalms or learning the laws related to the Sefer Torah. Ultimately, most rabbis will follow the practice of Rabbi Chaim Yosef David Azulai, who said that the local rabbis should rule as he sees fit in order that they should be careful in the future and everything should be decided according to the time and place. So there's really no set prescription uh, if a Torah scroll is dropped. Depends on the circumstance, and the rabbi of the community has the authority to make the ruling about it. Yeah, yeah. Typically, um, typically today, like this environment here, we have tables. You know, you can put tables out, and you st- even on a table, it's best to have a barrier between the table and the Torah scroll. So, if you um, if you notice when you visit a synagogue, um, the bima, which is the platform in which the Torah is read from, there's always a cloth on it to separate the the Torah scroll from the from the the platform itself. So now we're getting back around to the friendship concept of books. Um, he, he talks about here about when books are like people. Um, one might argue that the only thing treated with greater sanctity than holy books in general and the Sefer, Sefer Torah in specific is human life. Uh, so here's an example. Uh, if God forbid that uh, you know a, a house of worship would burn down, God forbid. But let's say there's someone inside and uh, they succumb to the smoke and you have the choice to take out the Sefer Torah and save it from the flames or the person. It's an obvious answer. You take the person. God forbid that anything like that would happen, that we would ever experience anything like that. Of course you would save the person's life. So, yes. Good point. He said, you can get a new Torah scroll, but you can't get another person. A new person. So, in some ways, books are given, are even given a kind of humanity. Um, It is not uncommon that uh, great rabbinic authors lose their personal identity and become known as the authors of their books. Anybody can think of Anyone like that? A rabbi that's known for the name of the book that he wrote? What's that? So Moses is called Humash? I mean, the, the, the person, the, the name of the rabbi is associated with the book. Like the, the Chafetz Chaim. Right? Uh, is that Rabbi Meir Kagan? But everybody knows him as the Chafetz Chaim. Because he wrote a book, uh, he did extensive work on uh, how to correct oneself from evil speech. Um, also, the Ben Chai, that's another one. Um, the, the, who? Orachakain. And w- w- what is uh, Rav Wobi? The Ali Shur. Um, everybody knows about uh, Rabbi Wobi's grandfather. Uh, Rav Shlomo Wobi, what's it, what's he called again? The Aleshur, 
which is one of his most notable works of writing. So, again, it is not uncommon that great rabbinic authors lose their personal identity and become known as the authors of their books. For example, uh, Yaakov ben Asher was known as the Baal HaTorim after his work. The, Ar- the Arba'a Torim and uh, and Zerachiah HaLevi, the author of Sefer Me'orot, became known as the Baal, Baal HaMa'or. In other cases, the authors simply became known by the titles of the books themselves. When one, when one refers to the Chafetz Chaim, we must take care to indicate whether one is referring to the influential book on the ethics of language or its author, uh, Rabbi Israel Meir HaKohen. Perhaps the most interesting way in which books become almost human is reflected in this comment by Jonah ben Eliyah Lansofer. Our sages of blessed memory warn and threaten that one should not teach law in front of one's teacher. Um, so basically this idea is common in Orthodox Judaism that if, the, if there's a rabbi in the in in the building, we don't uh, we don't teach halakha. We ask him, and of course, halakha is the law, Jewish law. So, if there's a question or a discussion about Jewish law and the rabbis in the building, we always involve him if we can help it. Uh, it's disrespectful to teach Torah law in front of one's teachers. What it's saying. Similarly, one should not teach law in front of one's teacher when one's teacher is a book and when the book is available to him to look up the law. Even if the matter is obvious to him, in any case, out of respect for the book, it is appropriate to open it up and to look up what, what is this law. For the letters themselves provide wisdom, and many times the law is made clearer from looking in the book rather than just from teaching it from memory. Furthermore, when other scholars are present and the law is clear to them, one should not be embarrassed to consult a book. To the contrary, this is how one shows honor to the Torah by clarifying the law to a point of certainty. So no matter how much we think we know the laws, we might know it back from front to back. It's important to give honor to the books in which the laws are written. So if we have the book here in front of us, even if we have no one to, if we don't have a rabbi to refer to, and we know that it's in the book, it's always best practice to get the book out, uh, read the text, and then discuss what it's saying, which is a, is a common practice here. It's nice to see. So... Um, this comes. This brings another little bit of a of an issue that has commonly come up with books uh, and holy writings. Um, how does one dispose of holy writings uh, when they have gone past their use? Um, I mean, books wear out, right? Uh, if you use them, it's it's kind of a good thing that you use a book so much that it gets worn out. But do we just throw it in the trash? You know, what do we do with it? Uh, do we keep it on the shelf where it's taking up space when it can't be used? Um, 
there's proper methods of disposal for holy objects, such as uh, like uh, Jewish men wear tassels on their four-corner garments, known as uh, tzitziot. Um, there's laws surrounding those things that once the, the tzitzit becomes frayed to a point or one of the strings is broken, it's, it's no longer fit for use. What do we do with that? You know, uh, you guys familiar with the Talit Gadol? Uh, it's a big uh, wool sheet with four corners and tzitzit on it. Uh, after years of use, uh, they get worn out. You know, they get, wool gets, uh, absorbs so much, um, Dirt, if you would, over a period of time that it's no longer fit for use. So how do we how do we treat these things? Do we just throw them in the trash? No. Um, there's a special place. Uh, it's called a geniza. Um, so it's almost like a tomb for books and holy objects such as itziot, uh, Torah scrolls, uh, mezuzah scrolls. Um, to fill in or the phylacteries the Jewish men wear during the morning prayers. All these things are considered holy objects and they're to be treated with reverence even once they're uh, past their use. They're worn out. Um, pieces of paper that we use in, in school and in learning that have the name of Hashem on it. Or uh, copies, uh, copies of writings that are written with uh, the way that, uh, that, a, that a Torah scroll is written. Um, even a copy of it that shows the, the way it's written is also considered a somewhat holy object. So um, the proper way to dispose of these objects, it goes in a geniza for a period of time. Uh, after the geniza is filled up to the point where uh, it's you can't put anything else in it, usually it's taken out and uh, treated with great reverence and buried as if uh, a person is being buried, almost like a funeral. So that's um, the question is though is how how does one go about this? Do we make our own geniza at home? Uh, no, you just uh, you you got a book like for example last year the flood right the flood during uh, the Hurricane Harvey. Uh, unfortunately, some people uh, flooded and their holy books were destroyed in the flood. Um, the local rabbis in our community. Uh, we're happy to put those books in the Geniza and to, to treat them with proper respect to dispose of them by burying. So uh, those resources are, are available to all of us. Um, at any time, if anyone here needs to get rid of some holy objects that have uh, been used past uh, their, their lifespan, uh, you can let me know and I'll uh, be happy to assist you in taking care of it. This is a big question that comes up. Uh, respectfully, if you have any books uh, that come from other religions that you need to get rid of, that are not specifically kosher Torah books, it's appropriate to double wrap them in like two plastic bags and put them in, in, the, in the trash. Um, I, asked, I asked my rabbi about this uh, a few months ago because... Uh, I do some email correspondence and what, and I got the 
I've gotten bombarded with a few people about that because, like you're saying, uh, what do you do with it? Um, so any books that might have a, a religious significance uh, that you that you know is not kosher, and if there's a question of it being kosher, it's it's that's a, that's easy to find out. Uh, but if you know it's not kosher, it, it's acceptable to to wrap it in like two two layers of plastic or paper, like wrap it up in newspaper two times, and put it in the trash. It's more appropriate to discard them than to donate them. I'm sorry. Yes, it's all it's already been defiled. No. Refer to your rabbi. <laughs> Possibly you could keep the records, and but uh, I would I would suggest to to speak to the rabbi about that one. I'm not going to get into those waters. <laughs> the question for everybody's listening was: uh, what, what if you have a religious book that's not kosher, that's a family heirloom and such uh, that you know that has uh, genealogy and things in it? And of course, you heard the answer. I'm not going to get into those waters. Refer to your rabbi. <laughs> Um, and if you don't, yeah, again, if you don't have a rabbi in your area, um, that's a good question. I'll look into it. I'll check with the rabbi and get back with everyone. I'm sure he'll be glad to tell us. But those are sensitive issues, you know. Uh, religious books uh, for many years, in, in the, especially in the United States, were used as uh, forms of family tree documentation for weddings and births and all this stuff. Um, it, before they had... Uh, computer archives, you know. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a sensitive topic about religious books, what to do with them. Uh, it's hard to know what to do. But uh, the rabbi told me specifically it's appropriate to, to just discard them in the trash. Um, it's, it's not good to donate them. And uh, it's not good to sell them either because you don't want to benefit from something that's not that's not kosher like that. You know, a kosher, a non-kosher religious book. You don't want to benefit from that. Yeah. Discardable items include kipot, which are these little guys here, audio or video materials, computer discs, diagrams or pictures without text, and stories. So, any of you? Yes. Well, it's just, yeah, it's a, no, it's a discardable item that you can just discard in the trash. You don't have to treat it with a, with a certain, reverence, if you would. It doesn't have to go in the Geniza. So, uh, for example, it says uh, here that it's, it, it is generally accepted that misprints, overruns, etc., which are not actually used for learning, are not holy. 
uh, imagine imagine in a printing press, or you 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 have a copier where you're copying something from a holy book to hand out, and it blurs or it's misprinted or what. It's not considered holy. It says you may double wrap it, like we talked about, and toss it in the trash. I'm thinking, what if you have uh, Torah on tape, or somebody is reading the Torah and you listen to it, and that becomes standard? No problem. You can just uh, wrap it. Uh, if you want to wrap it in paper or plastic, double and put it in the trash, just as a sense of whatever. You're not required to do that, but... So if it's on tape, it's not considered the same way? No. No, if it's on any audio or video material, doesn't fall into the category of holy books or a holy object, if you would. Uh, let's see. So, what we're talking about here is materials that are, contain God's name. Uh, three consecutive words of a biblical verse, um, when written on one line with the intent to quote the verse, or other written or printed Torah ideas or laws, schoolwork, homework, test papers may be included in this category if they contain any of the above. So it has to do mostly with written and printed that have the intent of being used for a holy purpose, such as learning. It depends on the nature of it. I mean, if it has a great spiritual significance to you and you've learned how, if it helps you to really learn Torah, it deserves a, a bit of reverence, you know. But specifically, I can ask the rabbi on that. On, on notepad, yeah, well, well, think about this. Um, until, until the Mishnah was uh, codified and, uh, and printed, um, the six orders of the Mishnah before that that's all they had was students taking notes from their teachers it was never published so uh, until the Mishnah was published um, they used a lot of notes from the students of the teachers from years and years of passing down the knowledge to collect the information for the Mishnah so imagine if all those notes had been thrown in the trash or put away for example so you never, you know, you never know what your notes, uh, what they hold as far as Torah learning. If it's if it's writing down the times and dates of uh, going to classes and what what that's it's a little bit different, but that's my opinion on it. But I'll I'll definitely ask the rabbi. It might be something simple as yeah, it's just a notebook. Throw it away. <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying throw it away, but it might be that. So, I hope this helps helps uh, today just to at least re reiterate the importance of holy books and that they are very much friends to us, um, even to the point where the sages say we should refer to them if we're going to teach. So, if we have the book available, let's get it out. Let's open it up, read from it, and then talk about what the text says, and we'll, uh, that'll help us not. It'll help us to honor the Torah to honor Hashem, to honor each other, to bring across the information properly. Um, so may Hashem help us to take all this information forward uh, and to be appropriate, and may it help us to be more righteous and holy people.